Please turn to 1 Corinthians 11 through 20, 23 through 29. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he, took, when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim... Proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. Maybe I just need to talk. Oh, that's why. Will's big head pushed it out last time. Sorry. <laughs> it's wonderful to be here with you this morning. Uh, thank Aiden for reading that. As you can see this morning, we're going to look at 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and kind of where we are <clears throat> as we've walked through the book of 1 Corinthians and looking at all the different things that Paul has done and the things that he's established as he's gone through. And one of the things that we've noticed that Paul has done a very good job is he establishes a principle early on and then later comes back and circles back to that principle and hones in on it. And that's what he's done all throughout this chapter is he does that uh, about, he's done it with maturity, sexual immorality, he's done it with idolatry. And he's going to do that. And what we're going to see today is he establishes some principles that are very important as we go into chapters 12 through 14. From this point forward, we're looking at the things going on in the assembly that he's talking about and how we conduct ourselves in the assembly. And there's a lot of things that he's going to do. So he's beginning to lay some groundwork for that in later chapters. So as we remember what he talked about, there was a lot of division in the church there at at Corinth, Corinth. And the problems they were having because they were not very caring and loving for one another. They had a lot of problems with depravities. There was sexual immorality, idolatry, a lot of things going on. And then there was just some personal problems. They needed to learn about marriage. They had problems with understandings about marriage. They had problems with understanding on how to uh, deal with one another when they're wronged. And they were openly suing one another. They had problems with meat-sacrificed idols, and they weren't understanding what the proper motive was, which was salvation. Other people's souls, taking those things into consideration, as we move into chapter 11, he he begins talking about worship problems. Now, before we do that, we have to talk about uh, the first 16 verses, which is, to be quite honest... I didn't even want to really go over this, and I've done more study on these 16 verses, I think, than any group of verses I've done in this study. And I wasn't really going to do it, but Trevor told me I couldn't chicken out. I wanted to come back later and, and do a kind of a problematics thing, but really, whenever you read this passage, the first 16 verses, 
of chapter 11. This is somewhat of a continuation in dealing with their motives out of chapter 10 and understanding some principles. And he lays the groundwork for a very important principle in this passage when he talks about headship. Now, the the basis of this is that Paul begins by saying, I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions even as I delivered them to you. When Paul says this, and one of the things that's very confusing about this passage is in all translations of that word tradition, that's what it's translated as, is tradition. But, you know, I grew up reading the King James Version. And that word says ordinance. The one time, the one and only time the King James translated that as ordinance and not tradition. Every other time in the New Testament, it's translated as tradition. That's kind of confusing, isn't it? Because there's something very different from a a tradition than there is an ordinance. And so, the ESV and almost all other translations translate that as tradition. That's very important in getting the understanding of what Paul is talking about here. Is this an ordinance or is this, transla- or is this tradition? And I want you to think about what Paul was dealing with. When Paul wrote to a lot of the New Testament churches, all through Greek, their Greek and Rome, and what he was dealing with, he was having to teach them to navigate some of the very cultures that they were having problems with. And it's not any different if you think about it today. If you go over to India and you go visit our brothers and sisters in India, their culture is vastly different than ours. So there's some navigation amongst cultural things that have to take place. And in the time of what, when Paul was writing to the church at Corinth, it was fairly common for women to have shaven heads, and that was an act of rebellion. I don't want to say fairly common, but a fairly common act of rebellion for women was that they could shave the, that they would shave their heads. It wasn't, you know, when I first started reading and studying this, a lot of people said, well, it had to, you know, people that had shaved heads were prostitutes. But there's nothing that indicates that. Whenever you start reading the historians like Tacitus and stuff like that, this was clearly an example of rebellion. And this was kind of what you would call a feminist movement. And that they were rebelling against their cultural norms. That's very important whenever you read passages such as this because he begins to lay some some things out here that really don't have anything to do with the cultural norms, but everybody's tried to make it about the cultural norms. And here's why I say that. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, the head of every wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. Now, this is, if there was a passage that this is where you wanted to tune in in this group of passages, this is the one. He's establishing what we call headship. Christ, God, Christ, husband, wife. That's what he's establishing here. Now, that's very important as you begin to read and go through chapters 12, 13, and 14 when he's talking about the worship and the assembly because he starts establishing that right now. He's establishing headship. And he's talking about prayer. Guys, why do we take our hats off when we pray? Do me a favor when you get a chance. Google, why do men take their hats off when they pray? The first 20 hits has this verse right here. This group of verses. 
the first 20 hits has this group of verses. Is that a tradition or is that an ordinance? Are we doing things out of tradition? Are our prayers impeded on because of hat? Is that what Paul's really dealing with? Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head, but every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, since it is the same as if her head were shaven. So this is where the cultural thing has come in. And I want you to notice what the head cover is. Not one time in this group of passages when he's talking about a head cover, is he talking about a veil or a piece of cloth? What is he talking about? He establishes it here. But since it is disgraceful for a wife to cut off her hair or to shave her head, let her, let her cover her head. It's not about a piece of cloth or a veil to cover the head. It's about hair. And the irony of this is if you would take the stance that a woman needed to have her head covered when she prayed and a man's head needed to be uncovered, what about when we're not in an assembly? Those that take this position... It's only in when they're in a worship assembly. Why wouldn't the application of prayer and covering your head and having your head uncovered, why wouldn't that be just as important outside of the assembly? Because we're not talking about coverings, we're talking about hair. Now I want you to notice the last verse here. As he gets down to the last verse, he says, If anyone is inclined to be contentious, we have no such practice, nor do the churches of God. So he starts out talking about a tradition. King James says this is an ordinance. At the end of this, Paul says, If there's anybody inclined to be contentious, we really don't have any customs concerning this. Why is that important? because of the different cultural things that Paul was having to deal with when it came to the subject of short hair, when it came to the subject of long hair for men. Because he talks about having men having long hair, and he says, does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it's a disgrace to him? Well, what does it mean for a man to have long hair? I don't. You look at my boys. I think their hair is long. I'm telling them all the time, cut your hair. I can't stand it. That's a little bit relative, ain't it? What is defined as long hair? And that's why Paul says at the end of this, you know, we have no such custom, we have no such practice. He can't deliver this with a consistent message. The another thing that I found I'm very ironical, if that's a word, is that I remember when I was young and I first became a member of the church, I watched two guys debate on this subject, this passage. And it was, very, it was a very contentious debate. And I just remember listening to them and I was following along and then I got to the end and I saw this, if anybody's inclined to be contentious, and I'm sitting there going, why are we arguing about this? 
Why is this important? Because we've muddied the water of what is important in here. You see, what is important is he's establishing headship. And then secondly, nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent or man nor man of woman. For as a woman was made for man, so man is now born of woman, and all things are from God. I want you to understand this is what is important in this passage. Paul has been talking about the problems that they've been having amongst one another. Their inability to understand the souls and the value of the souls of one another. Their inability to understand their roles within the body of Christ. Their inability to understand what salvation is and how that operates in their life. And then he comes back and all of that, he establishes headship and he says, men, women, you're both very important. You are not independent of one another. That you've got to have both roles in the home and in the body. Instead, people argue about whether or not we should take our hats off or our ladies should be covering their head. It doesn't make any sense. He's taking a principle, a physical principle in hair, and he's lying it upside next to a spiritual truth. And that's what Paul is trying to establish here. He's establishing a spiritual truth and understanding headship and the roles that men and women play because that becomes very important as we start going into chapter 12, 13, and 14. Now, Paul pivots on as he goes and starts talking about the worship. And he begins talking about communion. And I want you to see what he says right off the bat. But in the following instructions, I do not commend you. Because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. Can you imagine reading that for just one moment? That you go to the service of the church every week. And Paul says, what you're doing is pretty much worthless when it comes to this point. When you come together... It's not for good. It's for worse. That would be a dagger, should be the dagger in the heart of the church at Corinth. But what it also establishes is a principle that we need to understand and that not all fellowship and getting together is good. There's proper motive behind it. Proper understanding behind it. Just because a group of Christians say they're getting together to worship doesn't mean that that's okay. That God wants it done in His way. Now, there are things that are involved as far as the mechanics as we begin to learn some of those things, but a lot of it has to do with the heart. And the way that we come before God especially whenever we come to the Lord's table. And this is where Paul gets down to where the rubber meets the road. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear there are divisions among you. He established this all the way back in chapter 1. There were divisions among the church that there were some that say, I fall after Paul, some that say, I fall after Apollos. What they were doing was focusing their 
energy and thoughts on another human being and not at the cross of Christ. So that's been established, and Paul reiterates that fact, and he talks about some factions among them, and he talks about those that are coming together being proven. In other words, they're the select. And that's why you're doing this. It's a reminder of the book of James whenever he's talking about someone coming in dressed in well and good clothing, and you're saying, hey, come sit with me. That's exactly what was going on at the church in Corinth as well. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat in verse 20. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. So what was obvious is that they were coming together and they were treating the Lord's Supper like a meal. That there were some that came in that they had plenty. And there were some that came in that they didn't have any. They were poor and didn't have any food, so they were being humiliated while everybody else had food. And Paul says, I can't commend this to you. I cannot commend this. This is not the intention of what God wanted whenever He instituted this. This is a principle that He established already in chapter 10 whenever He said the cup of blessing that we bless is it not a participation in the blood of Christ. The bread that we break is it not a participation in the body of Christ. Because there is one bread. We, are, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. This principle that he established in oneness and them coming together in oneness. Not so that the poor person could realize just how poor they are because they don't have any food to bring. Not so that one can just consume upon their own lust and get drunk when coming to the Lord's table. So Paul reminds them. He gives them a reminder of what they were doing. And this is a reminder for what you and I are doing every time we gather the first day of the week. For I received from the Lord that I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when He was betrayed took bread, and when He had given thanks, He broke it and said, this is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, He also took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it, in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. Paul essentially rehearses what we read in the Gospels in Matthew chapter, chapter 26. What I find amazing about this is Paul wasn't at that event in Matthew chapter 26 when Christ instituted this with his disciples. But almost verbatim, it reads a lot like Matthew chapter 26. Confirming, more confirming in Paul's authority as an apostle and Paul, what Paul has, is being taught and what he said, I received this from the Lord. That it was given to him just as it was given the disciples. And he follows 
through that same meal and says the same things that Christ did in Matthew chapter 26. First and foremost, here is the bread. I'm giving this bread, my body, to be broken. But who am I doing it for? For you. This is the blood. The blood of the new covenant. As often as you do this, you're making a proclamation. One of the things that needs to clearly be understood when we come together and we commune with the Lord in this moment is that it's not about all the things that we want it to think about. It's not just about those things. One of the greatest statements, I believe, in this passage is the proclamation of faith. And that's very important. We're proclaiming that we understand not only what He has done, but what He is going to do. We're proclaiming our faith that we know that we have an eternal reward with Him. We're proclaiming in our faith that we know that He is going to return for His. Whenever you think about what he, the things that He uses, the, the bread and the fruit of the vine, you read in 1 Peter chapter 2, He says, He committed no sin, neither was defeat, deceit found in His mouth when He was reviled. He did not revile in return when He suffered, He did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Peter establishes some great principles in this passage about what Christ did. But he says he himself bore our sins in his body on that tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. When we look through the lens of faith and we look at what Christ did at the Lord's Supper, one of the things that we have got to understand and it has to be in the forefront of our minds is that he bore our sins on that tree and became that sin so that we could live and righteousness. The alternative to that is that without that, we would have no opportunity to live in righteousness. Which, which is the need for us to remember this on a continual basis. I want you to see what he says in Hebrews chapter 9. Hebrews chapter 9 does a very thorough walkthrough of some Old Testament law and what Christ did to that Old Testament law. But some of the highlights, he says, Therefore he is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, since a death has recurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. For where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. In verse 22 it says, under, Indeed, under the law almost everything is purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. So these two principles that are established by Paul 
and Peter and the author in Hebrews, the body that bore our sins, the blood of the new covenant, those are the elements that we're taking part in this morning. (coughs) And it's very important. And what Paul was not wanting them to do was A, treat it like a common meal. But for us, we do this every Sunday. What is the danger for you and I? We don't have a meal. I don't notice anybody getting drunk during communion. But what's the... It's the commonality of it, isn't it? The normalcy of it? What happens when things become normal? You know, it's normal... For me to wear purple shoes. I have, it's normal for my wife to look into my closet and see that I have an array of color of shoes. And to be quite frank, I have more shoes than a dude ought to have. I want you to think about marriage. I've been married for 27 years. 27 years. There are things that are just normal in my marriage. But what does normal lead to a lot of times? Complacency. When you do the same thing over and over again, you become complacent. When we read passages like 1 Corinthians chapter 11, there, this is the warning for complacency. Paul has already rebuked them for them making it a meal and not doing what they needed to do. Then he establishes, this is what it's about, what we just read. Now, he's going to establish some other things. Some ways to keep us from being complacent when we do this once a week. He says, wherefore, or excuse me, whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the... Body and blood of the Lord. Once again, this has nothing to do with worthiness. None of us are worthy to come before the Lord in any way, shape, or form. It's not about our worthiness. It's about the manner in which we come before the Lord. It's about the manner in which we partake in these emblems. Examining the body and blood that was shed for your sins. And knowing that, Paul gives another point of admonition here. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. What do you think about as you're partaking in that bread, as you're partaking in that cup? What do you think about Leading up to that, what do you think about when you rise up in the morning knowing that this is coming? Are there any thoughts of self-examination in that whole process? Usually we're very vague on what examination is. And I believe that we have an understanding of what examining ourselves is. But we usually don't have very much specificity to that. 
And I would like to offer some ideas for examination. Examining your knowledge. How do you know about Christ? What do you know about Christ? What do you know about what was done here? There's only one way to get that knowledge. That's through His Word. Do you examine your faith? As Paul said, you're proclaiming the Lord's death till He comes. Is this something that you're looking forward to? Something that you're extremely confident in? Or is it merely a checklist for a process for Sunday morning? Examine your obedience. I want you to think about, as Paul is writing this part of the letter, what had he just got done talking about in chapter 10? He had just got done giving them a warning to examine the Old Testament, to examine some of those stories from the Old Testament, those that were caught up in idolatry and backbiting and their lack of obedience and what became of them ultimately was their demise. When we examine ourselves, are we examining our obedience? Ultimately, are we examining our submission to Him and His plan and His will? Are we examining our repentance? You know, it's hard to come before the Lord and proclaim His death if we're unwilling to repent of our wrongs. Do we examine in a true heart if we are being repentant? And understanding that repentance is not just simple acknowledgement of a wrongdoing, that repentance has to do with change. Do we examine the change in our life? Do we examine our love? Of all the things to examine, that is one of the greatest things. Because what took Christ to get on that cross? His love for you and I. All the events surrounding that, all the dealings with the hypocrisy of the Pharisees, all of the trial, the beatings, all of those things drove to one simple point. And that was Christ loved you. He wanted nothing but salvation for you. Do we examine our love, not just for Him, but for those that, are surround, that we surround ourselves with? And even more so than that, those that have not obeyed the gospel. Because as much as Christ died for you, He died for them also. How much thought, energy, and time do you give into self-examination? For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. 
And this is where he laid out the principle. Here's the consequence. If you're going to treat this like a meal, if you're going to treat this like just a ritual that you do, if you're not going to go through the proper avenues of self-examination, and you're going to do this in an unworthy manner, you eat and drink judgment on your own self. And he says something here that you can read a thousand books on this and probably not land anywhere conclusively. That is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. Were they really physically sick? Were they physically dying? I'm going to put myself on the aisle that said this was spiritually. That they were spiritually ill and they were spiritually dying. And I want you to think about this principle even well past 1 Corinthians. You may have seen it in your own lifetime. That there have been congregations that didn't do what they needed to do when it came to this. Because if there was proper self-examination on a consistent basis, the other things that come with growth in a church are going to happen. But whenever you don't have that self-examination, and this becomes nothing more than a ritual, and people begin to see that, that it's a ritual, then what happens to a congregation? People start to get sick spiritually. There have been congregations that have died spiritually. They're no longer in existence. And I can guarantee you, at the center of all of that, was making this nothing more than a Sunday morning tradition. You see, the beauty of this is that we all get to be involved. The beauty of this is that we all can partake with Christ, with one another, and then also have that opportunity for self-reflection and self-growth. One of the great things about this Sunday morning Lord's Supper is that it should establish our hearts and our minds for the entirety of the week. If done properly, it's done for the entirety of the week. Now, whenever you have discussions with other folks that maybe worship in different ways and the, the subject of the Lord's Supper comes up, it's very odd that we do this on a weekly basis. A lot of places, they do it one time a year, two times a year, three times a year. And any conversation that I've ever had about it, it's been about that subject. Then it just becomes something normal and people become complacent. Not if you're doing it right. Not if your heart and your mind is in the right place. 
What a condemning statement for Paul to say, when your heart and your mind's not in the right place, you're not doing this in the way that God wants you to do, and all you're doing is bringing judgment on yourself. Not judgment from your elders, not judgment from me. Who is that judgment coming from? From the one that said, do this in remembrance of me. That is why you are weak and ill. But if we judge ourselves truly, if he says, if we judge ourselves honestly, if we're being honest with ourselves, we would not be judged. If we're being completely and totally honest with ourselves, and he's still talking about self-examination here, if we're being completely and totally honest with ourselves, there's no need for Christ to judge us because we're doing what we're supposed to do. And in judging ourselves, we're going to take care of the responsibility that we have. We're going to look at ourselves in our knowledge, faith, obedience, and our love. And we're going to do what we need to do to make those changes. That's what it's all about. We don't have to worry about judgment placed on us whenever we're properly judging ourselves. One of the greatest principles in all of this as he closes, he says when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. Now you can argue back and forth as to what the manner of discipline is here. But what I want us to notice is that we may not be condemned along with the world. That's what this is all about, isn't it? Remembering the Savior that saved us from condemnation? Remembering the Savior and what He did for you and I? Remembering that body that was beaten, that body that was broken, that blood that was shed for you and I, that we might have a new opportunity, that we might be called part of Him, that we can be a part of His kingdom, whereas before we couldn't be a part of it. I want you to think this morning on Christ's death, and all the events surrounding all of that, and the things that were done to him, the manipulation that was done, the lying that was done. And I want you to think about your own life. When people wrong us on a level like that, what is our first gut visceral reaction? Vengeance. People lied. People manipulated the situation. For someone that was completely just and did nothing wrong. How irate would it be, would you be, if someone came and arrested Jason 
and said, you know, you said some things that are we don't like. And not only have you said them in your home, but you've said them to other people. What do you think the reaction of, Jay, or of us would be? What do you think Becca's reaction would be? You know, I don't think Jason would just willingly go and say, you know, I didn't do these things, or if I did do these, I have my First Amendment right. I can say these things. But if on the other side of that, they said, we're going to convict you of this, but everybody in the room with you today doesn't have to worry about anything. Now, I know Jason pretty well. And I'm 98% confident that Jason would say, I'll take the fall. Luckily, we don't have to worry about that, do we? The court systems, the amendments and the rights that we do have, we don't have to worry about that. But that's exactly what happened to Christ on a much larger scale. When we partake in this Lord's Supper every Sunday, there is reminders in passages such as 1 Corinthians 11 that we're to look back at Christ's death through the lens of faith. That we are to look in and have proper self-examination. That we are to look up in our fellowship that we have with Christ. That we are to look around in our fellowship that we have with one another. That we are to look forward to Christ's return. And that we are to look outward to others in proclaiming Christ and what He has done for us. This morning, I know we're going to partake in these emblems here in a moment. But I want you to think about Christ. I want you to think about the suffering, the pain, the anguish that He went through. All for you. That your soul, as an individual, was valuable enough and His desire for you to have eternity with Him. And in doing so, He's asked that we submit to Him. We submit to His will. We submit to gathering together and doing this once a week. The question this morning is, have you submitted to Him? Have you taken the time to fully submit your life to Christ? Because that begins by having your sins washed away in the waters of baptism. Have you done that today? I know that there are times in life that we have problems, that we have struggles, that we have needs that need to be met. And we just need comfort, we need prayers, and we need strengthening. We can help with that also. 
If you would find yourself in either of these groups, we ask you to come forward as we stand and sing the song that's been selected. <laughs>